Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday, November the 10th. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Annika Smethurst. Hey, Tom. Now, last week in Austria, an Islamic terrorist killed four people and it turned out he'd fooled the judges that he was de-radicalised. I think there are really only a handful of people around the world who can do a proper, proper, proper assessment as to whether somebody has fully... Um, left behind an ideology that may lead them down the path of violence again. Yeah, it's a horrific story. We're going to ask, could the same thing happen here in Australia? Um, First, let's get into some good news, Annika. Yes, let's start with some major vaccine breakthroughs. Drug developer Pfizer has announced some massive news that its COVID-19 vaccine is 90% effective, Tom. It is a, a great day for science. It is a great day for humanity when you realise that uh, your vaccine has a 90% effectiveness, that's overwhelming. That was Pfizer CEO Albert Buller. Uh, This vaccine has been tested on more than 43,000 people in six countries and there's been no safety concerns raised by anyone. Annika, I sensed uh, in the Pfizer CEO's voice there that he was um, very happy with the 90% uh, effectiveness rate. What were they aiming for? Look, there's been talks that uh, some companies working on vaccines would have actually released this if it was anything more than 50% you know, effective, Mm. as long as there was no side effects, of course. So this is an amazing breakthrough. Now, the company says it will present all these relevant findings and safety data to regulators by the third week of November, so production can finally begin. So is this the news we've all been waiting for, basically? Effectively, yes. Look, there's not just going to be one vaccine. There's not just one company working on it. And this is a first-generation vaccine. There's going to be third and fourth ones that will they'll obviously get better. This one will require two doses, three weeks apart. Look, if you're under 50 and healthy and have no medical issues, you're probably going to be last in line. So don't hurry too much. But look, the company is saying they could probably roll this out pretty quickly. Yeah, Australia's ordered 10 million doses of this vaccine and we did that last week. And the developers of the vaccine are saying they could supply 50 million um, around the world by the end of the year and 1.3 billion by the end of next year. So I guess that will get beyond the most vulnerable um, next year and most of us might be able to get it and travel again. And still in the US, the president-elect Joe Biden is cautiously optimistic about this COVID-19 vaccine news. At the same time, it's clear that this vaccine, even if approved, will not be widely available for many months yet to come. The challenge before us right now is still immense and growing. Overnight, he confirmed that he'll be forming a coronavirus task force to try and control the pandemic when he takes office in January. Yeah, the US has just reached 10 million cases and more than 230,000 Americans have died from the virus so far. And there are fears another 200,000 could die during the winter months. Annika, when you think about the politics of this, if this vaccine sort of starts kicking in as Biden tanks the presidency in January. It's going to look very good for him politically and very bad for Donald Trump. Yeah, it's something you'd always want on your side, isn't it? Look, Trump did promise that there would be a vaccine before the election. There is speculation that this was held off uh, until after polling day. I'm not too sure about that. I have no evidence of it. But huge news like this, you could imagine, may have swayed a number of people and their vote. Biden did win by a few million votes there, though, Tom. I don't know how much it would have uh, helped Donald Trump. And a Four Corners investigation into the infamous bonk ban has aired allegations of inappropriate conduct about two senior government ministers. 
Yeah, in case you've forgotten, the bonk ban was brought in in 2017 after Barnaby Joyce's affair with his staffer, and it covers relationships and any conduct that could compromise an MP. Former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull claims he warned now Attorney-General Christian Porter that he could be blackmailed after he was allegedly spotted kissing a young staffer in a bar in 2017. He knew that I was considering appointing him Attorney-General, which of course is the first law officer of the Crown and has a seat on the National Security Committee. So the risk of compromise is very, very real. So after that report's come out, Christian Porter has categorically rejected the claims. He says the allegations which were aired were never put to his office. He says he's now considering his legal options against the public broadcaster. The ABC also spoke to a former Liberal staffer who revealed a 2017 affair with married minister Alan Tudge. He's put out a statement saying he immensely regrets his actions and the hurt it caused his family and the woman involved. And a floor cleaner that's less effective than mortar and an air purifier which doesn't purify the air has been named in this year's Shonky Awards. (laughs) Yeah, consumer group Choice says Coles and Bunnings have been selling floor cleaner so bad they could have called it floor perfume. (laughs) Others given the dubious honour were the Green Tech Air Purifier, which makes almost no difference to the air quality, and Harvey Norman for promoting a credit card with a 22% interest rate when the official cash rate is 0.1%. All right, in a moment, our in-depth look at de-radicalisation programs. Can you trust a terrorist who says they're no longer radicalised and should they be released early from prison? We're asking this question for today's briefing because of last week's deadly terror attack in Austria. Police this morning locked down central Vienna. Scenes of chaos as frightened crowds fled a series of gunshots. Targeting people enjoying a last night out in bars and restaurants ahead of a coronavirus curfew. Four people were killed. Another 17 people were wounded. The gunman was firing for nine minutes before being shot dead. The man was released from prison early after completing a de-radicalisation program. And it's that last part of the story that really stood out to us, that this 20-year-old convicted terrorist had already been in jail for trying to join ISIS and then was released less than halfway through his 22-month sentence because he'd been participating in this de-radicalisation program. Since the attack, the Austrian interior minister has said that the man was released prematurely because he joined that de-radicalisation program and that he managed to fool the judicial panel of his de-radicalisation and achieve a release. Yeah, so we're going to find out how these de-radicalisation programs are supposed to work because we do have them here in Australia too. And we'll also ask that important question, whether they should ever be used in decisions to release convicted terrorists early. Johannes Dahl is an expert in Austrian extremism at the University of Luzerne, Switzerland. Johannes, thanks for joining us. Tell us more about this attacker and why he was initially sentenced to 22 months in jail. Uh, The attacker, the perpetrator of the Vienna attack, was a young man who grew up and was socialised in uh, Vienna, Austria. Uh, He had uh, North Macedonian uh, origin and um, he was previously sentenced for trying to reach the Islamic State in Syria together with another young man and uh, they got caught in uh, Turkey and sent back to uh, Austria. So do we think he was fooling them or was there a chance that the program may have been effective and then 
upon being released, he was sort of, I guess, lured back into the wrong crowd or, or through his mosque and, and radicalised again. Uh, is there any evidence that these programs have any effect? So uh, you're like, I, I would agree with you. And I think there are like um, two possibilities that he was either um, pretending to be uh, de-radicalized uh, also because uh, in recent years, uh, in my opinion, jihadi uh, individuals became more careful uh, with that thing. The other possibility is for sure, as you mentioned, um, that radicalization itself is not a linear, like it's not a process which uh, necessarily need to be uh, in one direction and then de-radicalization means it's going back. Um, so it's often uh, what you can see with uh, jihadis that um, there's like uh, up and downs if it comes to the ideological worldview. I think the problem about de radicalization um, from from what I see, and it's really hard to assess these programs because of the lack of uh, empirical evidence and statistics. But from what I see is that uh, many of these programs, I wouldn't say are failing, but uh, they definitely um, probably cannot achieve the expectations uh, people have to them because it's really hard to de-radicalize people. It usually means to take them out of the social environment, um, to take them out of the milieu, and it means for them to cut all social ties they had before. And one point why people radicalize in the beginning is actually that they are looking for like group belonging and they are looking for meaningful social context they can get in these radical settings. And Johannes, the Austrian authorities have admitted that he was released early after fooling authorities about his progress. Um, are you worried that these programs are being used in these decisions to release terrorists early? Uh, definitely. And as I said before, I, I, I'm aware of cases where it happened that um, like actually teenage offenders um, participated in this program and they basically went there in the morning to meet um, their social worker they had or psychologist had a conversation and then in the afternoon they just went to meet their radical peers and preachers and uh, plotted attacks wow so uh, that's definitely worrisome and um, as i said i don't think it's 100 percent uh, possible to screen out these people but um, i think as more experts you involved in this process as more opinions you have and uh, as less you need to rely on just one single assessment. That was Johannes Saal, um, an expert from Switzerland. Uh, let's find out how these de-radicalisation programs work here in Australia. Anne Ali is a Labor MP from Perth, but before she got into Parliament, she was a de-radicalisation expert at Curtin University. And thanks for joining us. Is participation in these de-radicalisation programs here in Australia part of the decision-making framework for parole or, or early release? No, actually it's not because it's, it's not um, compulsory. So you can't force somebody to do a, a DRAD program. That said, like when we talk about de-radicalisation programs, de-radicalisation programs really is an umbrella term for a whole range of different mm. programs, some that are in prison, in facilities, and others that are kind of more of an early intervention one, usually used with um, younger um, um, offenders or potential um, offenders. So it's not compulsory, so it's not a, a part of a condition of parole or release. Okay, because that's what's worrying about this Austrian story, that this guy got mm -hmm. out early after, you know, allegedly fooling um, the judicial 
panel. So that's not something we need mm. to be worried about the the system and the way it works here. No, and I'm actually really surprised that that happened in Austria because over years and years and years of developing and and learning from mistakes around so-called de-radicalization models, um, from the very, very early years when I was working in the field, we knew that if you put somebody through a three-week program and then turn them out at the other end, it really didn't mean much at all. Um, that, you know, in, in countries where they were saying we've got these really successful in-prison de-radicalization models, we knew that there, there there actually wasn't any reduction in um, in the number of people who were going out and committing more acts um, and that they just weren't working. So there wasn't really a measure of success just through getting a participation certificate in some kind of de-radicalisation program. So I'm really surprised that this many years on, people are still using that as a condition for release and parole. At a very basic level, I know it covers a lot of different sort of programs, but what do they involve? You know, how long does it take to sort of start to get people to challenge these ideas and belief? And can you ever actually unteach beliefs? It depends. Like for for a lot of the former terrorists that I've spoken to, and I've spoken to quite a few as part of my research, it really wasn't anything external that um, started them on the pathway of walking away from terrorism. It really was something that planted a seed of disillusionment in their minds that got them questioning uh, from within themselves, what am I doing here? Am I doing the right thing? Like I thought I was here to fight a good fight. I thought this was a noble cause and here are these guys who are acting like buffoons, right? It's something as simple as that. You can prescribe the process all you like and you can have the the, the, the most, you know, fantastic on paper de-radicalization program in the world that ticks all the kind of psychological boxes and all of this and all of this. But it really is a matter of a whole range of different factors coming together at once as to whether or not and when somebody leaves terrorism or violent extremism behind. But, you know, usually it is diversion. It really is about getting them into something positive, getting them doing something different, um, getting them, I guess, understanding that the consequences of their actions, uh, countering and demystifying the beliefs that they have, whether it's ideological, religious, but also the key one is getting them to have an encounter with the person who they think is the enemy. So Anne, given that you you say these programs are most effective in the early stages of someone's de-radicalisation progress and less effective for someone who's already been convicted of a terror-related crime, do you think... Um, they should ever be used for early release decisions? No. Right. I, I don't think they should be used for early release decisions at all. Um, I think that you need to have a really, really, really comprehensive assessment. And I think there are really only a handful of people around the world who can do a proper, proper, proper assessment as to whether somebody has fully um, left behind an ideology that may lead them down the path of violence again. That was Labor MP Dr Anne Ali. Annika, good to get some clarity there that these programs aren't part of early release decisions here in Australia. I think that will put a lot of people's minds at ease. Yeah, I think that's really comforting. Um, I know they're used here at a different level, as, as Anne sort of explained, that it's that really early intervention when people might not have committed a crime that it lands them in jail, but are showing tendencies this way that they sort of can be sent on this track. 
That's it for today. Tomorrow, a very exciting episode on the new Pfizer vaccine, uh, 90% effective. We'll find out what that means and how it could be rolled out on tomorrow's episode of The Briefing. Don't miss it if you want to go back to life as we knew it before COVID. And by the way, if you're new to the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Um, It's been an exciting week with so much news and this is what we do every day, bring you the news, try and explain uh, the big stories in a way that's really accessible, informative and timely. And also tell your friends about it. We'll catch you later. A podcast one production.